everybody, how's it going? It's Chase. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. We're here on the show. That's right, Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. I'm very, very happy to be in your ears. Thank you for tuning in. Today's show is awesome. We're going into some uncharted territory. My guest today is a technologist. That's right, a coder, a programmer. I've always believed that writing code is wildly creative. Of course, this person has a ton of design chops and they are an entrepreneur in their own right because this particular person created the creator of Ruby on Rails, also an entrepreneur who created Basecamp and 37 Signals. My guest today is David Heinemeyer Hansen. That's right. If you at all think that there's a piece of your brain that thinks that an engineer isn't doing creative work, you have to listen to this. Also, I don't think I've, I've I don't think we have a lot of passion on the show, but David is passion 11. Uh, if there are conceptions that you've had about how work should be, you must listen to this podcast. If you have conceptions about what it means to be creative, who is and who isn't, and do you fit in, you have to listen to this episode. If you think that the way we have worked, maybe worked today or have worked in the past, has anything to do with what it should look like in the future, you have to listen to this episode. I would call this episode mildly controversial, specifically on the grounds of some of the stuff I just mentioned, but just also a wildly fresh take on so much stuff that you hear in pop culture about working 100 hours a week and grinding and hustling. There's just so much perspective in this episode that I can't wait for you to hear. You're going to love it. All right. I should shut up and get out of the way, let you guys get into the episode before we do a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits. And today, Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Live classes that are on air streaming for free, anything you already own. And on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Super happy to have you. Uh, so I've been tracking you and your work and your partner, Jason Freed, with specifically one of the things that was very impactful for me was the book Rework. Um, so you, you can say a lot of things about your career, technologist, author. Um, how do you identify? Like to me, self-identification is one of the, it's like a weird thing in this world where we're all a bunch of hyphens. So, oh, cool. We're at a party. Well, what do you do? How do you describe yourself? That's, that's a good question. Usually when I get it, I just say, 
I run a software company. Got it. Um, so that's a short summary, but it really doesn't encapsulate it all because I think uh, one of the things that's happened is that people have gotten so pigeonholed. Yeah. Lots of people like, oh, it's getting deeper and deeper, especially in technology, right? Like, yeah. it used to be a single programmer could create the whole thing. Yep. And now that more and more people are getting, oh, I'm a front-end developer doing React with Redux, blah, 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 blah. and then you're down <laughs> a rabbit hole, right? I like to sort of stay up as a, as a generalist, as yeah. a generalist in technology. Cool. And, well, I think we're going to go straight at, I, I, actually, let me give one, one concept, one element of context here, which is, I've had a really wide-ranging set of guests on the show. You know, people like billionaire entrepreneurs, uh, esoteric photographers that are just starting but doing something really, really cool and crazy, um, and a, a whole spectrum. But I have been, admittedly, I think a little shy on pure technologists. Mm -hmm. And I understand that you don't have the, you don't like the word pure technologist. That you just talked about yourself as a generalist. But conceptually, when you come up with a framework, an entire ecosystem for programming, like that's a super big deal. It's like developing, you know, it's like a language basically. So um, A, I, I feel this is me just like, I've underrepresented that community and so like following you for some time and wanting to have you on the show is <laughs> some redemption. So sure. thank you for being a part of my personal redemption. But also <laughs> I just, it's absolutely creative in the most, um, in, in, in so many ways that are similar to all the other disciplines that have been featured on the show. But I wanna know how you think uh, we'll just use you know Ruby for example, but you can talk about it generally. The way that creativity and programming and computers come together. I think it's really interesting because I think it's really changed. When I came into programming in sort of early 2000s, late 90s, mm -hmm. a lot of programmers did not identify themselves as creatives in my mind. Mm -hmm. They identified themselves as engineers or scientists. Yeah. And I mean, there's some of them who would say that's creative work as well, but it was quite distinct from say, uh, I'm a writer, yeah. or I'm a designer, and they saw sort of a split between these two things, and we're actually quite proud of being like not creatives yeah. in that sense, yeah. right? And I think that that really didn't jive with me at all. It was one of the reasons why I didn't want to become a programmer. I was, I've been a pretty reluctant programmer. <laughs> I've known programmers, I've been friends with programmers all my life, and it wasn't until basically my late teens, early 20s, that I kind of sort of stumbled into it because I needed it. Yeah. And then once I stumbled into it and I needed it and I started using it, I, I started realizing, oh, I have the wrong conception. This isn't just all about math. Yeah. Which is, that was my early conception of programming. Oh, this is just, if you like math a lot, you're gonna like programming. Which was because I, I grew up with, with demo programmers and game programmers. It was all about vectors and polygons and like, I have no interest, patience or, <laughs> passion for that, yeah. and it wasn't until I really discovered information technology, the web in particular, yeah. that it ignited something else, and I went like, this is pretty cool. Yeah. And then in particular, once I discovered Ruby. So I had tried a bunch of programming languages that I never really took to, that I was a reluctant programmer of. I never thought of myself as a programmer when I was doing PHP or Java or other things I did in school or just to make things work. Then I found Ruby, and all of a sudden it's like my mind just goes, whoa, this is something totally different. I could actually see myself doing this. So all of these things came together right at the same time. We started Basecamp, the software yep. that um, I'm still doing today, the whole foundation of our business back yeah. in 2003. That was my first real project in Ruby. And that was what gave birth to Ruby on Rails. Yep. And all these things came together at sort of 
the apex and I just connected all the dots and it was just like, this is what I want to do. Like up until that point, as I said, very reluctant program. I had a lot of other things I, I liked doing. I liked writing. I had this idea of being in business and yep. so on. Entrepreneur, but yeah. uh, once it clicked and once Ruby sort of grabbed hold of me, I thought like, wow, okay, I can, I can be a programmer. Wow. So uh, you, that was a beautiful, elegant weaving of a lot of things together. So I'm going to try and pick those apart. Sure. So let's, let's talk. I think that's a great uh, conceptual framework of how you identify. I want to now, so let's talk about Basecamp because I'm like passionate Basecamp user. And I think it goes back to a piece in my world where as sort of creators, I ran a, uh, my own photo studio. And at the time, the thought of like being organized, it felt like the man keeping me down. Like these are my ideas. And when you realize, you know, uh, ideas need frameworks to really happen and come to life, whether those are, you know, very intricate and detailed or even just general. Uh, and Basecamp, the fact that it was online and the fact that it was you know, easily shareable and it was simple. Like to me, it was yes. brutally simple. Right. And you guys actively, it was clear to me, were deciding to not go feature crazy that I loved it. So A, thank you. Sure. Uh, I give, I've given you a lot of my money over the years, but <laughs> very happily so. But B, like what were some of the guiding principles? A, talk about the founding of the company, but B, like why and you know, what, what was your vision there? Sure. So before Basecamp, there was 37 Signals. Mm -hmm. And 37 Signals it was started a blog, as a, right? It was a blog, uh -huh. too, uh, Signal versus Noise, uh -huh. founded in 1999 along with the company 37 Signals. And 37 Signals started out as a web design company. Jason Fried, my partner, and three other designers came together and like, started making web designs for clients. Yep. And I started working with Jason in 2001. We started yep. working on a couple of client projects together. And after we'd worked together for a couple of years, we just came to this one point where I think we dropped something. Like we were working with some client and it just, the email got lost or the files got sent the wrong way and we we're like, this is silly. We're trying to manage this whole project and there's four on our side and there's, I don't know how many on their side and it's kind of a mess. We're yeah. just doing it all in email. There's yeah. no process, there's no central place. We can't find anything. Yeah. We make software, can't we fix this? Yeah. Um, and we thought, like, let's give it a shot, right? Yeah. So we started making essentially just a tool for ourselves. Yeah. Can we just like, we had the inspiration at the time, like blogs were just taking off. Like, hey, if you had like a project blog, that could be one thing. If we could just have a to-do list here so we know what work needs to be done. If we could just upload some files and put them in this one place. Just those three, four things, like that'd be great. So we started doing that and we put together a package that was well enough for us to start using it ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I think we spent maybe three weeks initially tinkering, and then we started using it. Immediately threw a real project in there, um, started using it with a, with a client, and it didn't take much more than that to think, like, oh, this is a huge upgrade over email. Yeah. This is a huge upgrade. Now we have a system, we look better, right? <laughs> a lot of that was like, you have clients, <laughs> you right. kind of, you want to look good. Of course, and you don't yeah. look good if you miss the email, and yeah. it's just this huge thread, and yeah. it's just a mess, right? So it made us look good, and we thought, there's probably others who would like that too. Yeah. And at the time we were sharing hmm, out, Are there other people that want to exactly. look good? <laughs> <laughs> Is this a market that we can exploit? Um, so the software was kind of cooking and uh, we were sharing an office with Kudal Partners at the time. Um, um, advertisement and these days all sorts of things kind of uh, company. And we showed them, showed Jim Kudal, like, what do you think of this? And he was like, can I give you my money? I'm like, okay. Like, hmm. I, we pay for this. Like, yeah. we were 
before, again, we were sort of reluctantly building this. We had tried a bunch of different things. We had tried just use blocking system. There's like movable type and there yeah. is this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. Never really fit. We start building something. It started clicking. We show it to a couple of people in the industry. They go like, this is awesome. We, we want to do this. And we go, all right, well, let's try turning it into a product. Yeah. All the while, we're not dropping anything, right? Like this isn't like this epiphany that just goes like, oh my God, we have the world's best idea. Let's drop everything else that we're doing and put everything on red. Yeah. And then hopefully if it works out, this is going to be great. And if it doesn't work out, we're totally bust. Yeah. So we continue just to have clients. Treating Basecamp essentially as a third or a fourth client along the way, spent about six months building it. And in early 2004, we just had enough to like, all right, let's try to put it out there. And it was kind of a funny launch because we built it for ourselves and it was sort of just barely adequate for that. And we put it out there and we think like, okay, if we can get like, I don't know, make 2,000 bucks a month off this thing after a year, yeah. that'd be pretty great, right? $4,000, that's what, that was the target. We were like, $4,000 after one year, if we can make that a month, that'd be great. Like two weeks, we cleared that. And we're like, holy shit, this is crazy, right? And it's so funny because I remember a lot of those numbers. Yeah. And if you think of those numbers today in sort of comparisons, they're pathetic, right? right? Like we had no one sign up for this thing essentially, but we had like, I don't know, 150 people sign up the first day and we're like, ah! Incredible. Like today, you're like, oh man, you didn't have a hundred thousand people sign up on your right. opening day. That's a total flop. It's a right? bust, right? So we just we went through this slow uh, process because there weren't really a lot of other people doing it at the time. Right. One of the main things we actually um, had to convince people was put in your credit card. Yeah, it was still a here. thing, right? Right. In 2004, it was still a thing. Like, well, I don't I'm know if I want to put in my credit card. Like, eh. huh. and actually, one of the hardest things when we just got uh, just about to launch was. We'd build out this whole system to charge by the year, right? It was going to cost $4.99 a year or something else. $4.99 was the entry plan. And we'd built all the software, get ready for that, right? And then we'd go to the bank. That time, there was no Stripe. There was not a thing you could just sign up. You had to actually go down to the bank and like sign a stack of papers and say, I want to take credit cards. And they, of course, they took like five weeks to review this. And we're all busy just about getting ready to launch. I think like the week before launch, they didn't come back to us and say like, I don't know what you're thinking, but this is not going to happen. We are not going to let you charge credit cards and basically charge people for a year in advance. What if you guys go out of business in like three weeks? Everyone's going to charge back the amount and we're going to be on the hook. Like, fuck. Yeah, help. Um, <laughs> help. What are we going to do? Okay, I guess we can just change it and charge it by the month. Is that going to be okay? And they're like, no, okay. I guess we'll believe enough in you that you could stay in business for a month. <laughs> um, so we changed it over to start charging for the month and charged $49 instead or whatever it was. But that was just, that, that was the, the atmosphere, right? Like, we didn't really know what was going on. We didn't have anyone to sort of look at. There were none of these frameworks, not just for payment processing, but also the te technology, right? Yeah. I had gotten enamored with Ruby, but there wasn't a Rails. Yeah. I had to build a bunch of that stuff myself. And if you told me today, like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to build Ruby and Rails, I'm like, no way. I just built a little thing. I got to get this thing to talk to a database. Oh, shit. How do I do that? Let me look that up. Let me put that together. Oh, then I got to get it to render this thing. Oh, we also got to send email. Oh, I don't know. I got to configure this send mail thing and whatever. So it was a very slow process. There was not a grand vision. We kind of just stumbled into it step by step yeah. and without any of the risk, right? So there was none of the risk. There was none of the, oh, we put like all our money on four credit cards and whatever, which is a founding myth that I hear a lot. Yeah. And a lot of people are resonating somehow with this heroic ideal that unless you're risking everything and you're basically on the verge of starvation, like it's not really worth it. And we were like, 
we were having, we still had clients. They were paying right. us money and we were just fine, yeah. right? Yeah, what's wrong with So that? there was none of that stuff going on, which also meant, of course, there was no external money. There was yeah. no funding. Seat or, yeah. funding. There was none of this stuff because we were paying ourselves just off these clients that we already had. And that's yeah. what kind of bootstrapped the business. And then by the time it was bootstrapped, I think it took about a year. And then we were paying ourselves. The, the company was making just enough money to pay our meager salaries. And we were like, now we can do this full time. Yeah. With, again, zero risk, right? Wow. So embedded in that narrative is so are so many individual things that I'd like to sort of try and frame. So the summary, I'm gonna let you put it in the, in, into your own words, but you talked at one point about like, it's, there's a myth. So talk to me about the myth and then what your experience is relative to that myth. So the myth is... Like, myth is, yeah, is, yeah, is, is that entrepreneurship requires massive risk. And in many cases also that it requires huge amounts of capital. Yep and that you have to have someone who just have, is in a position where they can do both of those things, right? They can take a bunch of personal risk and then they can convince people to give them hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars, right? And that was always sort of the archetype of the Silicon Valley style entrepreneur. Yeah. And we came out of a completely different atmosphere. First of all, we came out of Chicago, right? Yeah. So Right there, Chicago, 2004. You know how many technology companies were in Chicago in 2004? Uh, None of them, right? Right? <laughs> Motorola, I think, someone uh, somewhere out in the burbs making razor phones or something. Yes. That was about the. So it was kind of like a desert in yeah. that sense, which it wasn't so much that um, just that we had issues with the myth, although we did. Both Jason and I had worked in the dot com era. Mm -hmm. Jason had worked for a couple of San Francisco companies. I'd worked in, worked in Denmark for a couple of incubators. And we were both deeply, deeply skeptical of that system. Yeah. It had just bust, right? Yeah. 2001, the whole thing just Boom. exploded. Yep. And we just like, this is fake. Yeah. This is unsustainable. This is all the things we don't want to do if we get a crack at it. Yeah. And then, of course, there was just the necessity that like, even if we wanted to, there wasn't an option. No yeah. one was going to give a couple of um, fellows in Chicago any money to build any kind of system at that time, right? right. Yeah. So we were born both out of sort of a sense of disgust somewhat <laughs> by being exposed to it yeah. and then a sense of necessity. Yeah. Um, and then we just, it just kept on rolling. And I kept, as, as, as Basecamp was taking off, 2004, 2005, 2006, sort of the industry woke up again. Like yeah. there was this lull and then it woke up again and all these software companies started happening. And we started seeing sort of the same things that were happening with dot-com boom and bust, right? People were raising big money and yeah. this whole narrative Radical just growth. came together that this is how you make software companies. And we are like, hello, no. This, <laughs> we're like, over here. We're over here. <laughs> we're not doing it like this at all, yeah. right? And in fact, we think the way we're doing it is a lot easier, is a lot more accessible to a lot more people. Yeah. Um, and it's more sustainable and in many ways is, is more nourishing, is healthy, more fun, sure. yeah, is yeah. more healthy. It's, it's all of these things and we're like, why is all the attention, why is all the light being shown on this one particular very narrow path yep. that arguably, yes, has turned out some spectacular successes, right? Mm -hmm. But you look at what's left for the rest of it, right? There's the one in uh, 10,000, one in 100,000 breakouts of the Facebooks, of the Googles, of whatever, and then there's just this mass underneath that just get wasted. Yeah. And I just, we looked at that and thought like, this is such a waste of human potential. Yeah. It's not that we shouldn't have those things, sure. it's that there's this whole other segment of the market that should also be there. 
And if someone wants to start a new business, if they want to be an entrepreneur, especially in software, they should be able to look at two, at least, they should be able to look at 50 paths, but at least they should have two paths. Not just being presented with this one option that says, you have to raise this massive amount of capital, you have to have this crazy burn rate, you have to hire 150 people in nine months, you have to do yeah. this full blast, right? And that was what I ended up being so um, angry, actually, yeah. at that we had this, the web, yeah. we had this phenomenal commercial platform that gave so many people so many opportunities, yeah. and we narrowed the whole thing down to this one archetype of what a software company was gonna be, and it was just, yeah. it was driving me mad, right? And it was actually driving Jason mad. So we started writing about it, right? We started writing about how did we come up? Yeah. Because we didn't do anything special. Like how many people out there can do a client business where they can get a couple of clients that can pay the bills and still have a little bit of time left over so that they can pursue their things as a side project. Yeah. Lots of people, right? Yeah. Versus this tiny group of people who can manage to convince Sand Hill Road VCs to give them money, right? Yeah. So I thought, this is just a broader message. We gotta, gotta get that going. So that's been sort of a, a mission and a passion for the past decade plus to communicate that there's a different way to create not just software businesses, but yeah. businesses in general that kind of goes like, we don't need all this stuff. In fact, in a lot of cases, you're better off without it. If you want to build a wonderful $10 million a year business, like, you cannot do that with that path. You can build a $100 million or a billion dollar business with that path. You cannot build a wonderful $10 million business. And there's so it. many businesses that are wonderful $10 million businesses. Right. They're wonderful $1 million businesses, right? Yeah. Shouldn't we have those two? Shouldn't those be part of it? Should we just focus on these uh, grand slams? Yeah. Well, there's some people who make all the money off their grand slams, right? Yeah. With the VCs and sure. that whole ecosystem. And they have very loud megaphones, right? And they have a very compelling story. This kid, uh, I remember um, one of the pivotal moments for me where I just got like furious, which is not about the person, Kevin Rose, right? I so with Kevin Dig, yeah. at yeah. the cover of Business Week in I think 2016, going like this, how this kid made $60 million in 18 months. And I just said, he didn't make $60 million. Someone gave him a, a big check to build Dick, which then imploded and never created any economic value whatsoever. Right. And I was just like, this is such fucking bullshit. Yeah, right? It's right? So There's just, this is bullshit. Yeah. And like, how is this just happening? How is this just rolling? How is this just the one narrative that everyone is going like, clap, 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 yeah. oh, this is wonderful? Yeah. And it's just like, this is just too goddamn much. <laughs> so this was the, um, this was sort of, this is sort of that fire that has uh, propelled a lot of what we've been writing about on Sickle versus Noise. It's uh -huh. what propelled us to write three books already. Uh, Getting Real, which was basically an extraction of um, a series of workshops we did that was called uh, Building a Base Camp, where we were just telling people like, hey, here's how we did it. And not just here's how we did it, like look at what went into it. Do you have those things too? You probably do. Do you have like uh, 10 hours a week, which was what I spent building Basecamp on the technical side, 10 hours a week. Now 10 hours a day, um, 10 hours a week to, to build it, you probably do. You can probably squeeze that in if you have clients, if you have other ways of, yeah. of making this happen. Uh, and here's how we otherwise went about it. Here's how we went about building an audience. Here's how we went about sort of developing a message. Here's how we went about making software itself. Yeah. So that was getting real. That was 2006, I think, and then uh, Rework, yeah. 2010. We took basically all those ideas we had from over a decade, mashed them into the book, uh, sold the manuscript to a publisher for the first time. We had self-published Getting Real, uh -huh. 
signed a, a contract that said you must deliver a book of 40,000 words and, and we had 40,000 words and we showed up to them like, we're gonna cut, cut the book in half, here's 20,000 words, publish that instead. Um, it was just sort of, so this whole thing just kept, kept rolling with us, kept screaming about this alternative yeah. path and we still are today. Yeah. I keep thinking like, there's gonna be this tipping point where we don't have to yell so hard anymore but we're not there yet, so I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm everywhere yelling about this um, <laughs> well, alternative way of doing it. You're right? yelling at the right people or with the right people because um, I think I've also tried to be a champion of the false narrative, or sorry, of rebelling against that sort of one, one path false narrative, whether, you know, for me it's around education, the fact that you, if, ever, if you go to school, and you go to these schools and you get a good job, and if you get a good job, then you're gonna be happy. And it's just like, that oh, is just, yeah, yeah. don't get it so, started, right? right it's exactly. just, I'm just about to turn the key. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Jump backwards off the building. So, um, so A, you're in a safe space. B, uh, I, I'm fascinated with the loud megaphone and everyone sees the handful of people that are on, you know, whether it's Kevin, Bless his heart, love the guy. He's been on the show before. He's an amazing guy. Wonderful. But, right. But he yeah. didn't write the headline. No, and nor did he do the prop with the earphones and everything, right? Yeah. Like I've been a, for the, one of those photo shoots. You probably directed some of those photo shoots. Like, hey, what about you put a prop on here? It'll look better. Yeah. You just do a thumbs up, and before you know it, you're like this smuck on the cover of a magazine. Um, been yeah. Guilty as charged. Uh, but I, I'm fascinated by culture's obsession around a handful of folks that largely are anomalies. And yes. I think it contributes to a terrible amount of anxiety, unnecessary anxiety. Yes. That compare a friend of mine, uh, Marie Forleo, you know, the liquor uh, Jägermeister mm -hmm. or Goldschlager, uh, which is even worse. Goldschlager is like bad Jägermeister with little flakes <laughs> of gold in it. So it's like the worst thing. And she, she calls this compare Schlager because it's terrible for you. It looks ugly and it's terrible, which is you're comparing your real life with everybody else's highlight reel. Yes. And so this is now, I think, epidemic proportion in our culture. Um, it's refreshing to hear honest, like heartfelt stories that are radically different. So that, I think, in a way, is shaping Basecamp, right? That's that's how Huge it came shape. up. Yep. Um, what, like, there had to be a few other takeaways from Basecamp that, sir, I hear you on the that counter narrative, and we're putting a flag in that. What else, like what's the peripheral stuff that you learned that was really surprising when you were on that journey? So with Basecamp in particular, I think, um, is that generalist sense. So when people ask me, what is Basecamp? Well, Basecamp is sort of a lot of things. Basecamp is a way to help you grow, to cope mm -hmm. with things taking off and all of a sudden you have more things coming on. But what are the actual tools? There's a lot of things in Basecamp, right? Yeah. Because just like how I approach technology from a very generalist sense of like, oh, I want to be able to know a bunch of things about a bunch of things. And I'm not going to go deep, super deep, right? Yeah. Basecamp is sort of the same way. Like it's simple because it, it stayed up there, right? Yeah. Like we just built a couple of tools and we put them together and we made the integration and the integration story was actually in many ways more important than, oh, do we have the best to-do section in the business? No, we don't. There's someone else who just does that, right? Do we have the best messaging system in the business? No, we don't. The value is that you put all those things together. Yeah. And what I found selling Basecamp and making Basecamp was that just, just the vast majority of people just don't need that much software. Yeah. They need a little bit, yeah. right? They're coming from, still today, our number one competitor is email. <laughs> number one, when we ask people, where did you come from? when you signed up for Basecamp, the majority of them did not use software to help them in their process before at all. Yeah. Or they use software in form of email or yeah. stickies or something yeah. else like that, right? Yeah. So 
just that that's still true, right? That we're at such a base level, there's such a focus, especially once you get sucked into the web sphere and you start knowing about apps and you start following along, there's such a temptation to all these micro comparisons. Oh, you have this feature, you do that and whatever. Yeah. Most people just, they don't know, they don't care. They yeah. just need a little bit. Yeah. And our focus on, on bringing them just that little bit at a reasonable price in a simple way um, is still controversial. <laughs> Which is just, it's such an odd thing. I would have thought today, given the fact Basecamp had the success that had, that we would have just a million of competitors that were trying to do this integration story. And instead, everything else that's breaking out right now, Slack, for example, yeah. the chat, yeah. just the chat part, right? Um, Asana, just a to-do list part, right? Like Trello, um, just the boards on the Kanban style, right? Like a Dropbox, just the files, right? Yeah. It's all wonderful tools, great, great tools. And then we talk to customers who's trying to make all those five things talk to each other, and they go like, "Just making that happen is just. A, can you just give me something that does that?" And you're like, "Right, yeah. like I don't need all of those things." And that integration story is still so open and so right there, right? It's available. Um, yeah. So that's where we we focused on it. It continues to to surprise me. And the same thing on the technology side. So Ruby and Rails, we created 2003. I started working on it. I released it in 2004. And 2005, six, seven, it really blew up, right? Like, tons of people started using it, and I thought, like, okay, this is going to last a couple of years, and then there's going to be a Ruby and Rails in every single language and whatever, yeah. and whatever an early advantage we have will be gone. And here we are, uh, what, 14 years later, <laughs> uh, just pushed out a new release of Ruby and Rails. We've never been more popular, even if there's less buzz. Yeah. Never more people using Ruby and Rails. Why? Because it's still controversial because it's still doing disintegration. Ruby on Rails is just like Basecamp, trying to take a lot of ideas, put them into one package so that a small individual team could go like, all right, let, let's get on with it, right? Versus most technology today, if you think things taking off, React, Redux, a lot of these things in the JavaScript world are very narrow focused tools that are very good at this one thing. Yeah. And then it's basically like a box of Legos that just yeah. someone empties on the floor and go like, oh yeah, yeah, isn't this easy? Just put the whole 4,000 pieces together by yourself. <laughs> and I'm like, I just want to play with a freaking Boy. truck. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Could someone just put the truck together? Like, do I have to put all 4,000 pieces together myself? I just want a goddamn truck. Right? Yeah. So that's what we try to sell, both with Basecamp, with Ruby on Rails. Let's just sell some trucks. Like, yeah. it does, everything doesn't have to be a construction kit. Yeah. Which, I, let me just, a <laughs> quick anecdote. When I moved to the US in 2005, I just finished my degree at uh, Copenhagen Business School. I just finished my bachelor's degree. And Jason's been like, oh, the Basecamp thing is, is going pretty well. This was 2005. We'd been in it for two years. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should just do a master's degree since they're free in Denmark. I mean, um, should I just do that? And I was like, oh, okay, I'll move to the US, right? I arrive in the US, and I think one of the first places Jason took me out to dinner um, was some burger place. And the food arrives, and it's in pieces. Like, here's the meat, here's the salad, here's the tomato, here's the onions, here's the bun. And I'm like, where's the chef? Like, no one assembled this burger for me. What, what am I buying here? I'm, bu just, I'm not buying ingredients? Like, why didn't we just go to a like, store? I didn't know of Whole Foods at the time. Like, couldn't we just go to a store and get these things? Yeah. And this is one of those things that I just find so fascinating. Like, I want finished things. Yeah. If I go out to eat, I want the chef to prepare the meal for me and I'll just eat it, right? Yeah. When I use technology, most of the time, I want it assembled, yeah. right? And I think that that's, um, that's still such a controversial idea in a lot of circles that uh, the assembly shouldn't be part of it. 
and especially in technology, where it really offends me is that everyone puts their shit together in the same way, which is what's offends me about the burger too. Like how many ways are there to put a burger together? Like you're gonna put the salad on top of the bun or like there's just, there's not that many stereotypes for yeah. it, right? Can we just agree on a couple of them and then like we just do that, right? So that's what I tried to do with Ruby and Rails. Like we don't all have to configure how code talks to a database. Can we just decide once and then we can move on to something that's more interesting yeah. and focus on that? I love that, that, to me, there's so many um, permutations of the same argument. Like e the fact that every, most of the creators that I know, they're trying to invent an entirely new thing when what you did is you just looked at four things out there. Yes. And they're four Legos. And you put yes. them together. And that's the remix. And that, yes. nothing is new. Like there's exactly. so many ideas, and we're just trying to reassemble those ideas. People are worried about inventing some new once-in-a-lifetime thing, yes. which keeps so many people from doing shit. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's because there's such a focus on the glory is on this grand insight, right? Like yeah. there's something brand new no one has ever heard of before. Um, that's the 1%. Yeah. And then there's the 99, which is we just take the pieces that are already there and put them together in a different order, and all of a sudden, that order is exactly what a group of people need, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that there should be more focus on that, and there should be more validation that not only is that like good and totally okay, it's fucking great. Yeah. It's what the vast majority of the vast majority of people in the world should be doing, taking things that are already existing, putting them together in, in interesting, slightly twisted, slightly subtly different ways, um, and that's how we go. I mean, if you look at both technology and the tools that we're using, like so Basecamp is what to-do lists and file uploads and some blocking and some messaging and whatever. There's nothing new in any of them in their archetypes, right? Like Basecamp invented nothing. Ruby on Rails invented nothing, right? All the um, patterns of use that we took. I went shopping in, in textbooks and they're like, I want one of those, I want one of those. And then I'm gonna put it together and I fit and I'm gonna give you a truck. It's so, like, to me, the, um, that, again, false narrative that the best ideas are this sort of wild thing that you have yes. to come up with and it's a once-in-a-lifetime deal. And you have to be a genius. Right. Right? Who, if it's only the 1%, then it's only the geniuses that are allowed. Yeah. It's only the geniuses that really have this sort of, they can come up with this brand new thing. Um, which is what I, sometimes when I get accolades for the work that I've done, I'm just like, thank you. <laughs> That's nice. But it wasn't genius. Right. Like, it was a bunch of work. Yeah. And it was actually also, it's not even that. Because the flip side sometimes of that is like, well, okay, maybe I wasn't a genius, but I outworked everyone. Yeah. This is one of those things I have with, uh, with Gary sometimes. <laughs> right. when like, he's all about like 18 hours a day. And I'm like, no, just like seven or eight. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> like 40 hours a week. Like, it's plenty of time to assemble all the trucks the world will ever need um, for the vast majority of people, right? So. If you think of things like either I have to be a genius or I have to be willing to work 120 hours a week, like clearly a lot of people would look at those things and like, I'm not a genius, I don't want to work 124 hours a week, entrepreneurship is not for me. Which I just go like, that is false. Yeah. Uh, right? The same thing with risk. There are all these things that the, the characteristics we uh, ascribe to these heroes of entrepreneurship, they're the ones that turn everyone else off. Yeah. And we need to just take those out. Yeah. We need to actually shoot them down and we need to puncture them and say like, no, you can create great, sustainable, wonderful, impactful businesses on 40 hours a week. You can create great software inventing nothing, right? Just putting things together in novel ways. You can 
get a business off the ground without mortgaging your house five times over, just treating it as a side project until there's some traction you get going. All of a sudden, if I take those three barriers away from you, like, what's left now? Like, why aren't you doing it? And all of a sudden, people can go like, okay. They might still not do it, right? I think sometimes there's also an attraction to those barriers. Yeah. Because people can go like, oh, yeah, I'd totally tried. be an entrepreneur if it was just because, like, I, if I was billions. a genius. Yeah. Or if I had 120 hours a week or whatever, I'd totally do it, right? But if you take those things away, you don't have those excuses anymore. Yeah. And then you might still say, like, okay, entrepreneurship is just not for me. I don't want to start anything new. That's kind of risky or whatever. Yeah. But there's also plenty of people who were legitimately put off who now go like, okay, I guess I could do it. Yeah. I've heard so many times from people who read Rework or Getting Real that it was that permission. Yeah. I'm allowed to do it too. And I'm allowed to do it on a sustainable way that I can, I can picture, right? Yeah. A lot of people can't picture themselves jumping from like, okay, I work at a job, right, nine, nine to five, and I, I gotta jump into this other mode where I'm risking everything, I'm risking my house, I'm risking my kids whatever, I'm working 120 hours a week and I'm raising money. I can't even picture that jump. It's yeah. way too far of a jump. Yeah. And there's so many steps, not just in between, but steps that you can stop at and yeah. say like, all right, this, this is, is a lovely this. existence. This yes. is a great business. This is, makes all the money and gives me all the free time. And, and this is, that's where I really also just get fired up yeah. is on these success criteria, right? Yeah. There's such a focus on like, oh, if your success in businesses or in, in software in particular, it's if you built base or Facebook or Google or whatever. Yeah. There's just, the difference between being an entrepreneur who starts something and like is barely scraping by and getting a business that makes, say, a million dollars a year, that is 97% of the difference you will ever experience in material goodness. Yeah. Right? Once you get to the point where you have a million dollars clean in the bank, yeah. your life is 97% different from having zero and having yeah. to worry about every paycheck and so on, yep. versus the difference between jumping from a million to 10 million, maybe that's another 2%, and then the difference between 10 million and a billion is the last percent. Why would you focus on those things? And why wouldn't you focus your odds on getting to like the 97% of the value? Because the odds are totally different. Yeah. The odds of you setting out to start a business that's gonna make a million dollars a year, like, they're still not great, it's hard, yeah. but they're infinitely better than yeah. the odds of you starting the next Facebook or Google. It is the, the cultural narrative around that as failure yes. versus raising money as seen as success Yes. Like raising money, basically, and you know, someone who's done it. Right. Like, if you Mark Cuban sat here, he's like, "That's your first big loss." Yes. When you when you raise a bunch of money. Yes. And now you owe a bunch of people money. Right. And yeah, or your yeah, your blood, sweat, and tears. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I think I really appreciate you helping. That's part of the journey and the vision of this show and on Creative Live in general is that we're helping to rewrite that narrative. So yes. you being you bring in your passion and your heart into that. Couldn't ask for more. So if we stopped recording right now, it would be like a slam dunk. But I do want to get to rework because sure. that was something that mm -hmm. really, um, I would say, was more than I looked at you guys more. I was familiar with Thirty Seven Signals mm -hmm. and you know read the blog. I was when I carved out a lot of my world was really really early in that community. Yep. And rework though, there was something um, like you said earlier. I think permission. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about the, the concepts behind Rework, give a couple of the overarching themes and, and why you guys wrote it. So Rework is really a compilation. Surprise, um, right? Surprise. There's a pattern It here. was not a book written from scratch. Yeah. It was a compilation of everything, the best ideas we'd been talking about over the past 10 years. And we put them into this one format. And you know what? The number one, maybe even today, if you go on Amazon.com, the number one critique of the book was, Hey, I read Signal versus Noise every article for 10 years. This has nothing new. <laughs> Thumbs down. 
You're like, you know what? You're the slivers of the slivers of the slivers, right? Yeah. The tiniest, the tiniest percent. Right. Who are these people who followed us for 10 years and read everything that we ever wrote? Right. No one, right? right? right. Except that guy, yeah. clearly. Um, and I think that that's, that's all, one of these other misconceptions. If you have something to say, you, you're only allowed to say it once. Then it's not new anymore. You know what? If you want an impact, you better damn well be ready to say the same thing 10,000 times so before true. you even start to scratch the surface, right? Yep. So that's what Rework tried to do, is to say the same things we had been saying for years and years and years in a different format that could reach a wider audience. Or a different or wider, yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. and, and, and have a different kind of impact. And a lot of the things that we put into Rework was basically just the lessons and the differences that we had took from, from running Basecamp, the business. Um, one of the things, for example, uh, was, uh, ASAP is poison. So we had, at some stage, um, sort of lulled ourselves in, as, as most people do, is like, oh, I need this ASAP. I just need this right now, right? There's this yeah. constant urgency around, um, you have to drop everything to do this one thing for me right now, and then in three hours, I'll tell you something else to say ASAP, and yeah. then you gotta drop that to do that for me. And we just found that just such a toxic idea. Yeah. that. ASAP and the constant context switching that, oh, now you gotta do this, now you gotta do that, yeah. was not a good way to get things done, yeah. right? And we always looked at things in the sense of, how can we get things done? We are a tiny team. When Basecamp was founded, we were just four people, right? And it took us years and years and years, and then we were seven people. And years and years and years and years more, and then we were like 14 people. We didn't have a lot of people to spare. Yeah. So we had to make the hours count. Yeah. And not thrashing those hours with ASAP, this, that, and the other thing was a big point. The other part that sort of relates to that is, is that meetings are toxic. That is so easy, um, especially for people who are managers, yeah. to call creatives into a room and go like, all right, let's have a meeting. Let's brainstorm this out and like, let's spend an, an hour on this. And usually they place that meeting at like 10.30, right? Someone showed up to work at nine or whatever. In an hour and a half, I have that meeting. Um, let me surf Reddit. Am I gonna dive into like the hard work of the day like an hour and a half in advance of when I need to have a long meeting with someone? No, I'm not. So I'm gonna waste that time, right? Mm -hmm. then, I'm go then we're gonna have the meeting, which is not just like a one hour meeting, right? Because there's probably seven people in there. So it's a seven hour meeting right. all of a sudden. Yeah. Now we spend seven hours figuring out what, what we took turns telling each other what we did. We could just have written that down and sent out and got them email, right? right. Um, and then on the other side, then like your day is kind of splintered. And this was one of the things that as us as creators, both Jason and I, we, we make this stuff. Yeah. Like we didn't just hire a bunch of people and then they make the stuff. Yeah. Jason made a bunch of the designs. I made all of the code and the programming in the beginning. We didn't have the time to waste, yeah. right? And then we got on this schedule that, and realized that if we started bombarding our day and we started splitting it up and like slicing, oh, um, let's do a meeting at 10.30 and then there's this one guy that wants to meet for coffee at two, that's the day, it's done. I'm gonna get zero out of that day, even though I really only have two things on my calendar. It's, it's done as a creative day. Yeah. Like I'm not going to make a huge leap forward in creating a new feature for Basecamp or extracting something out of into Ruby on Rails or any of these other things. That has to happen on days where I have these long stretches of uninterrupted time. And that was one of the things where people kept coming up to me and like, oh, what's your secret? How do you get to do so much things? How do you get so much done? Is it because you worked all these hours? Is it because you do all these things? No, I just like don't take lunch meetings and I don't meet for coffee and like I have five hours of nothing. You know how much stuff you can get done in five hours? If you just, if no one's interrupting you for five hours, you can do the world, Yeah. right? You need no more than four to five hours out of any given day if you get them in one chunk 
uninterrupted. And it was lessons like that where we took and said, like, people are doing it wrong. They, they keep staffing up. They, they keep thinking they need more people when they just need to find out ways to make the hours count. Not the number of hours, it's the quality of those hours. And most people are making do with some really terrible, low-quality hours. Yeah. It's not just things like meetings and things that interrupt them. It's also the quality of, of the hours themselves. Yeah. So as a programmer, as someone who's creative, I need like headspace, focus, dedication on the screen. I have to keep a thousand concepts in my mind to put it all together, right? If I'm sitting right next to the sales guy who's yelling on the phone, what's the quality of that? It is shit. Yeah. And I've worked at places like this. And especially the thing, and I find it so hilarious. Like, oh, we're going to have a modern office. We're going to have this open, open office. And we're going to sit on a long desk. And like, this is all going to be great. And we're going to mix people, like salespeople and programmers and designers. And they're all going to collaborate all the time. And all the programmers just went, like, give me the gun now. Yeah. Right? Um, this is not progress. This is not modern. This is not better. This is just shit. And the reason it's shit is because it's designed by people who are not actually creatives doing the work. Yeah, so true. And it's things like this, which just like, this is so unnecessary. Like, you talk to any programmer, or designer, or writer, anyone who needs this dedicated, dedicated focus, yeah. creative time yeah. to get done, this is where happiness lies, right? For me, if I get, which is rarer these days than it used to be, and I'm regretting that, I'm trying to find ways to get back to it, getting those five hours where I can just dive deep into a problem, yeah. That is the day where I'll sit with the rest of the day, it's just like, uh, right? You get into that flow state, you get all the dopamine rush of creating something good, yeah. and it's a wonderful day. Compare that to a day, as we talked about, the one that had been punctured five different ways where you're sitting next to the salesperson. Mm -hmm. That's the day where you go home at the end of the day thinking, what did I get done today? Yeah. That's a shitty day. Shitty days like that make you feel shitty. Like, why would we want to make people feel shitty and get less interesting work done, right? Yeah. So it was just these things like, on their face, there is no upside to the shit, except for maybe the aesthetics of the workplace. Um, I worked at a place like that once, right? And we had, um, this was in Copenhagen, an investor was gonna come by. And like, we all had to get arranged up at our little desks. And like, we got turned around so that people, some of us had to sit like facing the, the hallway with our backs to it so everyone yeah. could see the screen. So, oh, aren't they busy? Like, wow. aren't these monkeys really typing in there? You should really invest in this thing. They're typing, they're typing, oh, they're so busy. And I was just like, this is such shit. When I'm going to make my own goddamn company, we're not going to do this monkey business. And that was a lot of it, right? Yeah. Like, that's a lot of what Rework was, was both Jason and I, we got this uh, dose of shitty company running um, when we worked for other people. And we were like, if I get the chance to call the shot, we're not going to be this stupid. We're going to go back to first principles, and we're going to build our way up, and we're going to find all the shit that doesn't make sense, and we're not going to do it. What are some other things that don't make sense that you don't do? Um, well, for me, I don't work in an office. So remote working is just huge for me. It's like the most natural way to get a lot of these properties we just talked about. No one can pull me into a meeting when I'm like 4,000 miles away from Chicago in, <laughs> in Malibu or in Spain or other places where I've lived, right? Um, even better, the, the times um, over the past six, seven years, I've, I've lived about part-time in Spain. Mm -hmm. We, we got started on the whole business, by the way, um, the origin story there. I was in Copenhagen, Denmark. I wrote Jason an email, uh, and we got started working together. And I was seven time zones off, right? So we did the bulk of the formative work on Basecamp seven time zones apart. Wow. And initially, we thought, oh, man, that's such a handicap. If we were just sitting next to each other all the time, that would be great. Then I moved to Chicago. I started coming to the office, and we started getting, like, half the work done. And we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, so I started working from home. 
very early on and just realizing this is the environment for me. When I can control my own environment and I can just like not respond to people and yeah. ignore people, right? It's just a huge advantage. So remote work for us has just been huge. Yeah. Not just for me um, and, and Jason and the other people who are already at the company, but what it allowed us to do. Um, we've hired people from all over the US, from Canada, from Europe, just wonderful, great people who live in not tech hubs. Right now we have no one who lives in, in New York and no one lives in San Francisco. Not because there aren't good people there, but because there's wonderful people everywhere else too. Yeah. And they're completely overlooked. Yeah. Um, and they're a completely untapped market of just intense talent yeah. right. of people who don't want to move to any of those cities, right? And right now there's such a focus on like, oh, well, we all got to get everyone to the office. And we're like, rework or remote is such a, an easy win. You just decide that this is what you do, and now you have access to world-beating talent. Wow, of course we're gonna do this. We wrote a whole book about that too called um, Remote Office Not Required, where we kind of just tried to put all these thoughts into like, this is how you should do it. Because a lot of these cases with both rework and with remote, the way we actually get the inspiration with it is when I start talking to other people, and then I listen to like how their business runs, and I just go like, yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? This is the <laughs> stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I had the same thing with remote, right? Yeah. I, I Remote got uh, kicked off after I had, had, I don't know how this happened, but I had talked to three CEOs from three companies and we were talking about remote work, right? And they were giving me their reasons for why they weren't doing remote work. And I just had this reel running in my head. Oh my God, you're so stupid. <laughs> like you really have not thought this through in just an iota of it. Like someone should really help you think this through, right? Because. Your arguments are so shallow. Yeah. Your defenses of why we all need to sit at the same table are so idiotic. And I know you're not that dumb. Yeah. Right? I know you're just misinformed and underinformed. Yep. Someone should inform you about this shit. What about, let's talk about, I think all right. I'm going I'm to throw <laughs> a rock at this because I think I know the answer. But there are for whom, there are some people for whom the social aspect yes. is part of their personality yes. and for whom connecting. It feeds a part of their soul. Do you think that, like people getting together physically, that there's there is some upside? Do you feel like uh, it could be, it could be a myth? Like, how do you think about it? For or is that just because the world used to be much more extroverted, and now there's room for both introverts and extroverts that we're seeing these blended models? Like, what of the what? Why? Do yeah, you no, think that's good. And. and I'm no. putting things that have been on the edge. Of whatever. course, we're I doing that on purpose. And that's on these that's, otherwise, and it's boring this, conversation. This is, this is good because it isn't that cotton dry. And even though we embrace remote work intensely at the company, I have seen the formation, we still meet up. The entire company flies to Chicago twice a year yep. for a week yep. where all we're doing is basically connecting yep. directly with people in person because yep. it has a huge value. Yeah. Um, and you. We've had lots of cases of that where, where someone ends up in a situation. If all you do is you work for a remote company, you sit at home and your breakfast blends into your dinner, that's misery. Yeah. Like you're not going to be a happy, wholesome human being yeah. after just three weeks of that, yeah. right? Uh, humans are not built for that. They're humans built for different amounts of social interaction and with different people and it doesn't have to come in this package yeah. that the office used to provide us, right? Yeah. So for me, I'm definitely an introvert. Yeah. And most of the people who work at, at Basecamp probably is. A lot of creatives, I think, tend to be. Yeah. If you look at programmers, sure. writers, designers, whatever, a lot of them are introverts, not all of them. Yeah, sure. um, but they've been ignored for so long, Yeah. right? Everything has been driven by like what the management 
um, sales, all these other roles that are traditionally much more likely to be extroverted, yeah. wanted. And they wanted, oh yeah, we should have this thing, and like, it wouldn't it be great if we could be there all day and we put into foosball and tables, yeah. and we can brainstorm at like 11 at night if that's what I want. Um, and all these introverts just quietly had to take it. And I think remote as, a, as, a, as an idea is kind of like starting to flip tables around, right? Yeah. But even with that said, we have plenty of people at Basecamp who like don't want to sit at home all day, so they go work somewhere else. Like there's co-working spots. There's plenty yeah, of those. Yeah, go to or yeah. Yep, yeah. I have plenty of people go to coffee shops. They go somewhere else to mix it up, but it's on their schedule, yeah. and they can sort of mix and match. They could choose to say, all right, the four hours where I really need the dedicated work, I'm just going to lock myself into my my home office and do that, and then I'm going to go to a coffee shop in the afternoon and get sort of the vibe and and whatever. Those things are hugely important and. I, it shouldn't be seen as it's either or. The yeah. best setup of that is some sort of mix. Yeah. So, you Ruby on Rails. Let's go. Like, it's a big deal. Okay. Just <laughs> let's just acknowledge it. That's that's badass. What? How do you think about it today? What role? Like, how do you touch it? Um, what role does it play in your life? How do you think about it? Where is it going? Tell me a little bit of a story, creative narrative around. Like what that techno technology platform or way of thinking is? Sure. What's it about now? So, I released Ruby on Rails in 2004 when I had just extracted it, pulled it out of Basecamp essentially, right? Yeah. And it got sent into the world as a sense of gratitude. So, when we build Basecamp, I build Basecamp on all these open source tools. MySQL, Apache, all these long running projects that have been around for quite a long time, and I got them all for free. And the fact that I could get all those things for free, Ruby itself is open source as well, the language. Mm -hmm. I got all those things for free were one of those barriers that were taken away. If you were trying to make a uh, website in 95, you had to buy a <laughs> license from Oracle, and yeah. you had to buy a license from this and a license from that, which meant that like, these barriers of entry were really high. Yeah. When we started building Basecamp, there were none of those. I paid $0 for any of the software that sort of went into creating the application itself. And that was why we could do it. We couldn't have done it otherwise. Yeah. So I just felt that an immense gratitude that I had to get back when I had something of value that I could share with others. Yeah. Um, so that was the first instinct, that I don't know if anyone's going to like it. I like this thing I built. It allowed me to use Ruby, this wonderful programming language that really opened my mind and yeah. that allowed me to self-identify as a programmer. Um, and this helped me do it. So here's Rails. And I hope that it does the same to you. And Thankfully, it did, right? So a lot of people then picked it up and, and got inspired about it and started using it. And like, as I said, that's 14 years ago. And in the interim years, I've just kept on doing it because it was never about a destination. It was yeah. about a creative outlet for me where I can take everything as I'm working on a piece of code mm -hmm. and extract the common things so that I don't have to do it again. One of the things I absolutely hate is repeating myself, right? Yeah. Um, I've sometimes I've I've written chapters for books where like the computer crashed, and like I lost the whole thing. And I said, like, "Yeah, we don't. That That's, chapter's not happening. It's not in the book. I'm not, I'm not writing it again. <laughs> I'm sorry. Done. Right? I just I cannot stand repeating myself, which is also one of the reasons I'm a really bad conference speaker because I cannot deliver the same talk twice. <laughs> right. I can do it one time, so I have to put all this energy into it, and then I. Do it one time and that's it. I cannot repeat myself. Record right? it and share it, yeah. Yes, exactly, which is one of the wonderful things after YouTube that at least you could then share it in, in mass. It wasn't just you did it for like the 50 people or 100 people who showed up. But I feel the same thing about technology. I hate repeating myself. I don't yeah. want to do the same things again. I want to solve new problems. Yeah. If 
I keep solving the same problem I've been solving over and over, I'll get bored and I'll disconnect. So the way that my sparks fire is that I get to solve new problems. And the only way I get to solve new problems is if I encode the solutions to all the old problems into a box, and then I can just take that box next time I need that, right? Yeah. And I can share that box with other people and they can share their solutions with me, and, and then I end up just creating new stuff, which is really the fun part. Not necessarily creating new stuff, but putting it together in new ways. Yeah. And not having to redo the same stuff over and over again. So there's that whole aspect to it. And then it's just the aspect of like, it allows me to program Ruby. And yeah. that's just fun. Yeah. Right? I, I like programming Ruby more when I'm creating something real. And that's usually the, the impetus to it. But I also just like doing it itself. Right? Yeah. Like photography, obviously. Yeah. Um, like I got into photography and like, it's just fun to do it. It's like, it's also great to get a great picture of it, but there's just something in the process itself, the flow that it provides you as a creative person yeah. that's inherently rewarding. Um, so that's why with, with Ruby on Rails, I just keep on doing it as long as it's fun, as long as I get this energy out of it. And then of course, you also get this sense of belonging, the sense of yeah. meaning. Yeah. There's hundreds of thousands of programmers um, who've used or are using Ruby on Rails, all these wonderful applications that's been birthed from it yeah. that I get to look at and say like, oh, I played a small part in that. And I can get to continue to play a small part in that. And I can continue to get programmers to focus on programming as, as creative endeavor. Yeah. Not just as scientists, not just as engineers, but that there's this whole expression of yourself and um, your writing into this. This is one of the terms I'm really fond of is to be a software writer. It's not, we don't have software engineers at Basecamp. We have a lot of software writers. And emphasis on writing. Getting, yeah. getting that emphasis on writing and getting to do it it's just fun. I also like actual writing, right? Like I cannot not do that. Like if I take, um, we're talking about people, basically about this reasoning, doing your favorite things. One of the reasons, um, we just recently decided that we're freezing all hiring at Basecamp. We're 54 people. The business um, for 2007 was the best year it's ever been. 2007 or 17? 17, sorry. Yep. 2017, best year it's ever been for the business and we're not gonna hire anymore, which is what? Most people go like, oh, you do a hiring freeze because like, things are a little tough or a little yeah. tight and you got to cut back. Things are the best they've ever been. We're hiring freezing. And we're hiring freezing in large pods because I want to do my favorite things. Do you know what my favorite things are not? They're not doing whatever legal review of things you have to do when you have 54 people. And like, I can just already see all the shit that I have to do to run, help run a company of 54. Yep. It's like that slice of my life is big enough. If I make it any bigger, I'm going to puke yeah. and then I'm going to quit. I don't want to puke and I don't want to quit. So this is it. We can have 54 people, that's what we can manage. And then I get to do my favorite things. I get to write, I get to program, and I want to do more of that, right? And I want to stay in that state forever. People keep asking me, oh, what's next? What's the next big thing you're gonna do? Yeah. What do you mean? I want to keep writing, I want to keep programming. That's good enough. I can do 50 years? Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Sign me up. Exactly. So uh, I think this is beautiful and it's elegant. But doesn't it, and, and I'm, for what it's worth, I'm, I, I agree. I'm, I'm capitulating right now. I think when I have at different times in my life through the expectations of others, it's very hard to stake out this claim, which is one of the reasons I love how strongly you're, you're, you're yes. presenting us. And I, I feel like I've done the same thing. I had to, you know, bail on professional soccer and dropped out of school a couple, you know, yep. to do the thing. And I felt like mm -hmm. that was hard. But once you've done that a couple of times, you're like, wow, I'm actually the boss. I'm the boss of me. Yep. I'm in charge. I don't have to do the shit. If I don't want to do the shit, I got to do the thing. And I might have to carve up my own path. Right. But I'm the author of my life and yes. no one else's. And so it's very courageous. But what about 
all of the success, of course I'm speaking tongue in cheek here, but what about all the success that you're walking away from? Yes. By having you know, Ruby on Rails be even bigger to have Basecamp instead of you know, 10 million in revenue, what about 100 million? Yep, and we get this all the time, and I get this accusation that like, I'm not ambitious enough. Yeah. I'm like, first of all, really? Like, usually I feel slightly embarrassed of like iterating through the things that I've done over the last 15 years because right. it, it sounds like, oh, there's Created more. Ruby there's and a, Real and right. wrote a couple best-selling books. And but, but, right, right? So like, first of all, I'm well past good enough and I'm done happy, enough. Yeah. Like, I don't owe the world anything more than what I've put into it right now. What I do owe myself is that I have complete freedom to do what I want to do. If I wanted tomorrow to walk away from Basecamp, I could not work for the rest of my life and I'd be totally fine, right? Like, when you have that freedom, when you reach that point, you get to this sort of mirror where you look at yourself like, why am I doing this? Like, what is the meaning behind it? And what I found is the meaning behind it is not adding another zero to my bank account. Like, I've kind of stopped counting. At one point, I, I totally did count, right? Because yeah. um, you needed to. I needed to, and it was also just this tension, like I didn't come from money and you, you, you get exposed to this thing and you like, your brain kind of goes a little haywire and I think we're, humans are wired for that, right? Like yeah. this accumulation. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you accumulate and you accumulate and you're like, shit, my life isn't any better than it was five years ago. I've accumulated all this extra stuff. Um, what is it that I actually want out of life? And when I look for those sort of pillars of meaning, um, they are things like, I want to continue to spend most of my time doing my favorite things like programming and whatever. I want to have the impact and the form that I want to have the impact. I don't want to be forced into some constraints where I'm going to sort of bend, right? A lot of people, I think, go into business and, uh, and ideas with the best of intentions. And then once the pressure starts squeezing, they're human. Yeah. And they crack and they break in all sorts of ways where I think I'm no different. If you took me and you inserted me under the standard pressure cooker of uh, a high-flung uh, VC-backed uh, startup company, my ethics might start to squeak, yeah. right? Here I am though, have none of those pressures, right? I feel like I have an obligation to myself and the world to like, okay, like, let me then live the very best life, the closest to the ethics that I can get, closest to the best use of the time that I can get, and then what more is there? Isn't that already perfection? Isn't that the arrival point? Like what, what else is I'm, am I I'm gonna get to? Is it like, if you can afford the jet, yeah. that's when everything starts getting magic? No, come on, seriously, right? Like, as we talked about, these, there are these thresholds and there are these barriers. When you're worrying about like paying the bills and yeah. whether the water's gonna get shut off, yeah. like money is a very large part of Your what's psychology. going on, right? Yeah, of course. Then you reach these points which we reached like 10 years ago, when like, okay, I have a million dollars in the bank. I have none of these concerns. Right? Maybe I have, if I just stopped working and didn't work for 20 years, I might have some of these concerns, but they're just, they're erased. So whatever else I can accumulate really is not gonna add so much to it. I'm at 97, yeah. right? I'm, I love the 80-20 the, the principle, right? Yeah. If I can put in 20% and I can get 80 back, that's the stuff that I wanna do, right? Like I don't wanna keep squeezing and squeezing and squeezing to get the last 2% out of the, uh, the citrus, right? It's just, it's sour. And uh, that's a contentment and that's still hard yeah. because everything in our culture, especially in the entrepreneurial work, is all about like serial entrepreneurs doing the next thing, building a bigger thing, growing, 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 right? Yeah. To reach the point where you can say enough, 
I have everything that I need. I'm at a good place. I want to stay there. It's really hard. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things where I've been so happy to discover stoicism. Um, Tim Ferriss and yeah, plenty Tim of others have been, yeah. uh, Ryan, been really pushing it. And I think it's a really healthy antidote yeah. to all these other pressures that we have in life. That we have these um, Roman emperors and, and whoever else from 2,000 years ago telling us, like, hey, you know what? Even though I have everything, like, including the whole Roman Empire, <laughs> I am still susceptible to all of these pressures and uncertainties and whatever. And I need to step back and, and get to a better place where I'm at ease and I'm at rest with the world. Yeah. Um, so that has been part of sort of my focus over the last five years is, is to realize what I have and not fuck it up. Let's, I think the easiest yeah. thing you can do when you have something good is to fuck it up by keep striving for more and more and more. It's beautiful. I want to understand the psychology behind that. What do you have to do to clearly you have to actively deprogram? Yes. So let's get tactical for a second. Do you shape every day? Do you have a set of values that you, you know, write on the mirror in the morning? Do you have... You know, is, are there, is it like the meditation on the thing of staying status quo? Like, what are some of your tools? You mentioned stoicism. Presumably, there's a half a dozen others because, again, I, I feel like I've lived that in a lot of different ways, and yep. it resonates so deeply. And, you know, there, frankly, there's not a lot of people out here in the world talking in the same way that you're talking right now. So the people that have tapped into that, and I'm sure there's, you know, a lot of people who are watching and listening that are like, oh, shit. This, right. is, this is my unlock. So let's shift gears for a second yep. and try and get really tactical. And what are some of the key things that you've done that have helped you? Presumably you got some shit in your childhood that's really good. You had parents that did X or Y, but maybe not. So what's the thing? What is a set of things that have helped you, A, get to, and then B, maintain this point of view? Love that. Because one of the reasons I resonated so dearly with stoicism was I felt like I had like a crotchy version of it running my own personal operating system already. <laughs> that I already had a bunch of the tactics that stoicism preaches built in. And one of the key ones is negative visualization. This idea that um, loss is going to happen and you better start preparing for it now. It's just that if it does and when it does, because it will, mm. um, you, you won't get destroyed. So negative visualization is something I practice every day. I practice thinking some calamity is going to happen. Base camp is going to blow up, get hacked and plundered or whatever, and the whole thing is going to fall apart, right? What's left? Have I invested everything that I have? Have I invested my entire ego into that so that if it goes away, poof, then I'm no one? If I have, or if I'm too heavily invested in it, I need to pull back. I need to have other things in my life. I can't just be all in on this one thing. If you're all in on one thing and that thing goes away, you're all out. Right? Yeah. There's nothing left. So that's not a good strategy in life, in finance, in anywhere. Like yeah. you go to any uh, uh, stock program, like, oh, yeah, I'd diversify. like to put everything into this one growth stock. They're like, wait, you're crazy? you got to diversify, right? Yeah. So I think about like ways I can diversify my ego, my self sense of self-worth, and all the things that I'm, my interests, right? Yeah. So that if this one pillar crashes down, I'm still here, and I'll still be totally fine. And I think about it then even within the categories of things that I, I do like, um, especially around coping with success and wealth. Like, I'll, I know a lot of people who've made it very well, who've narrowed their comfort zone down to like a very thin slice because their expectations about what life now owes them now that they're rich or whatever are extremely high. 
Yeah. And then they put it on themselves like, oh, I've, I've been first class. I mean, what the fuck? I haven't even gotten my champagne yet. This is outrageous. Right? And you just go like. Dude, you're flying I, through the air at 600 miles an hour. <laughs> in a fucking seat that reclines and you can sleep? Have you seen the people traveling with three kids back in coach? Like, that's fucking hard. Stop mm. goddamn complaining. <laughs> and I think most people, like, it's not that that person is a bad person. This is the natural outcome. Yeah. This is autopilot. When you just run, like once you get to like, you acclimate, right? Yeah. And then you become an asshole. Once you acclimate to that level, like you reach the level of asshole, right? And you're like, all right, now I wasn't an asshole, now I'm an asshole. And to push back against that, you constantly have to think like, you know what? I could be back in coaching, that'd still be fucking wonderful. We'd still be flying through the air. I'd still be going some amazing place that like- On the internet years at 600 ago. miles exactly. an hour. <laughs> like how is this not wonderful, right? So you have to constantly go back and think through those things and try to resist and broaden your comfort zone. Yeah. That the natural sense is that it's going to shrink and you have to constantly widen it out, right? Um, so I tried to do that through all sorts of things and I tried to put into perspective what are the things that I actually like and enjoy. So if everything went to shit tomorrow, right, and we lost everything and we went bankrupt and whatever, if I still have my hands and my eyes, I could still program. Hey, wait a minute, programming is one of my favorite things in the world. So I, I, I lost everything, but I still had my favorite thing in the world. It's probably not that bad, yeah. right? Life is probably still pretty good. And once you get to that point, I think you remove a lot of the anxiety. So I know a lot of people who've made it really well who have a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Because they're so afraid of losing the things that they've accumulated. But if you stop looking at the things you accumulate and you look at yourself, did I grow as a person? Like, how is anyone going to take anything away from that, right? Like, if I get wiser, if I get better, if I get smarter, if I get kinder, how am I going to lose these things just because something happens in the market or something outside of me, out of my control, um, takes my material things away? I'm not, right? And it gives a sense of peace. Yeah. Like, I'm at peace now with the fact that Basecamp could end tomorrow. There's no indications it's going to. It's, as we just talked about, best ever, blah, 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 right? Things are great. Um, but I've been at times in my life where I thought like, oh shit, what if this thing stops, right? Yeah. And you just get such a sense of ease and sense of comfort once you let go of that. So negative visualization to realize, to, to expand your, your, your comfort zones and your range yeah. and your, the acceptable outcomes, right? Um, which goes me to, to sort of the second point of this, which is um, amor fati, loving your faith. Not trying to change anything. Like people always talk to me in, in interviews, like, what's the one thing you would tell yourself like five years from now that you <laughs> want to do different? Or I would tell myself nothing. The fact that it's been a, a journey like this where we've made a mistake, that's what makes it worth it. Like, I think back of um, when I used to play video games a lot, right? You'd have cheat codes, right? You could look up at the back of a magazine and you could look at it. I get it, infinite lives. As soon as you got infinite lives, the game was uninteresting. Yeah. The, I haven't even read this book, but I just like the, the title, the, the path is the struggle, or the struggle is the path, or something. This idea that we're built the for striving. Yes, the, the obstacle way. is the way. Ryan's That's what it is. I haven't read the book, okay. I just love the title, right? Yeah. And it Stoic. resonates with me in, in just that sense that like, it is meant to be somewhat of a struggle. Yeah. Not a deeply uncomfortable struggle in all the ways, but, but a struggle somewhat. And once it stops being a struggle, once there's stopped being meaning to it, the whole thing falls apart. Which is also the whole reason why like, people go like, oh, what if you could sell your company tomorrow? Like Google came by and they were buy it for a billion dollars or something. Would you do it? Like, no. Then what am I going to do? Like, I can already sit on a beach and drink a mojito for three months if that's what I want to do. Like, 
then I would do it for nine months? No. Do you know any entrepreneur who sold their company and then like just retired to the beach and leaned back and like for the next 10 years just sat there and sipping mojitos? They'd be dead, yeah. right? It's just not, that's not what humans are built for. They're built for doing things. They're built for having a purpose and having a meaning. And those things come from such different things than we tend to think they come from. Um, so there's a lot of focus on that. And yeah. I, I think about that a lot. And trying to line these tactics up and these perspectives. Yeah. Like Omref, a more fatty, like a negative visualization, like expanding your comfort zone, like constantly having like self-criticism yeah. running as a dialogue for not becoming that asshole. What about specific tactics? To me, those are ideals. Like, what are the actual things that you do? Do you carve out 20 minutes a day? Do you write, do you have a journal? Do you, let's get tactical for a second. Sure. So one thing I do, a way I think through all of this is through writing. Mm -hmm. So I write quite a lot. We have a blog, Signal versus Noise, that we've been running since 99. Yep. Uh, it's the well. continuation of the same thing. It's where we extract the books from. And it's how I think through and how I process a lot of these things. So. Whenever I have something that I'm wrestling with, I always try to, can I write it out? Can I get something out of it? Because it's not just about, oh, this is an interesting piece of writing. Yep. It's also like a way for me to think. And writing as a way to think and a way to get clarity is just such a powerful tool. So I write, I have maybe, I don't know, 50 blog posts that I haven't published that are in my notes on my iPhone. I tend to write actually a lot on planes and it's, I'm just writing on my iPhone in the notes app. And it's just, it's such a calming way to sort of get these things out of my system. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of that, like this idea, um, even though I'm not a big fan of these productivity hacks, but the, the idea of uh, getting things done, for example, right? The, it's a framework for getting things out of your mind so you don't have to keep fussing about them, keep yeah. stressing about it. And I have the same thing with these tensions. When I have anxieties, when I have discomforts and so on, you can get them out of your body by like, typing them out, right? Like it's almost like extracting them out and you're like letting, bloodletting, right? Yeah. Um, even though that's totally not a thing, you shouldn't <laughs> let your blood in, whatever. But I do that with, with writing, that it's a, that's a key tactic. And the other thing I do is um, I keep thinking I have enough time. So when I'm really engaged in a project or whatever, I have a natural temptation to being just obsessive about it, right? Like, oh, well, let's just keep going. Like, oh, it's uh, six o'clock, let's just keep going. Oh, it's eight o'clock, let's just keep going. And a lot of people celebrate that, and I, I don't. Like, I actually get to that and like, oh, it's five o'clock, I've been at my desk for eight hours. Do you know what, the kids are next door, I should just go play with them. And I, and I think like, I have this good flow going, and that's wonderful, but I'll also be there tomorrow. And like, I'm gonna do this for what did we talk about the next 50 years? Whether I put another hour in now or tomorrow, probably doesn't matter that much, right? So this notion of constraints. I love constraints. I love constraints, as I said, we freezed hiring at Basecamp with 54 people because that's a way to set constraints. Yeah. It sets constraints about our, motiva or our ambition, our vision. These are the things we can do and we can't do everything and that's great. The worst things I have is like when I have this blank canvas, right? When you can do anything you want, it's, incredibly intimidating. I want like a space. Like I can draw within these lines in here. I have eight hours today to do something. Let's get to it, right? <laughs> not I have unlimited hours, not right. I could work 22 hours if I could somehow <laughs> get myself into it, right? There's no constraints there. Yeah. I can just be flappy and inefficient. Yeah. If I say to myself, I just have the eight hours, I can just do that, then that's what I got. Let's go. So, to, this is an extraordinary, I feel like, reframing of so many cultural um, memes or ideas or constructs and, I, and in, a, in a very sort of authentic way that's to me 
unlocking the ability to go against the grain. Like the meta-narrative here is one of the things yes. that I'm most excited about where we've covered, and we've covered a lot of ground. But like to try and synthesize all that, is there, do you have, are these key operating principles for you and do you think about them and are there three of them or five of them? Are, of course we've been talking about it all along, mm -hmm. but when you think about it, like it's the ability to go against the grain. Yes. The ability when everyone, you know, I think about this as a, you know, a founder and CEO of a company that has a bunch of really smart people on the board and really smart people that mm -hmm. are, you know, on the executive team and, and at every level of the company coming, there's always competing ideas. Yes. And it's your sort of willingness to say no under a lot of pressure. Right. Your willingness to, to stick to your own internal values, yes. either as a leader or as an independent thinker. Yes. To me, that's the meta-narrative what we've been right. talking about. So uh, I think as a sort of a bow on this, is there something that you've done to cultivate the ability to go against the grain? Because that is massively useful. What have you, what have you done? I think one of the tactics that I've picked up is this notion, of, if I'm saying something where everyone is nodding, I'm not saying anything. Like, then we're all agreeing, right? Like th which means that most of the time, and I'm not saying just you and me. Sure. I'm saying like, the world at large as a, a sounding board for ideas. If I send something out and like it just comes back 100% positive, yeah. probably wasn't that, it was probably trite. It was probably banal, yeah. right? When I send something out, I wanna get at least some part back that go like, you're a fucking idiot. You're crazy. Right? You're yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, this is stupid, it's never gonna work, it's dumb, it's like, this is not how you build a successful company, you're unambitious, you're all these things. Like, I've actually trained myself to be a little addictive to that like vinegar, right? That when I sent that out and I get some of that vinegar back, I'm like, there might be something here. Yeah. That doesn't mean just because people call you stupid that you're not also actually stupid, yeah. but it just means that like there's, there's gotta be a mix of that, right? Um, Kathy Sierra, who's one of my all time favorite writers and, and idols, she's not writing a lot online anymore, but in the mid 2000s, she had this blog calling creating passionate users. And she had this notion of, um, you can be bland, you can be in the middle, you can be sort of just mm -hmm. whatever, and no one cares, right? Or you can have people who absolutely love what you do. But if you have people who absolutely love what you do, in order for the universe to balance, there has to be an almost equal-sized group of people who absolutely hate what you do. Yeah. So you have to embrace the fact that there's gonna be these two poles. You cannot have people who love what you do without also having people who hate what you do, right? So these are one of these, these ideas that I have on like, am I doing something meaningful and, and worthwhile? Do I have both poles? If I just have one of the things, I'm probably not I'm banal and trite and whatever. If I have the other pole, there might be something here, right? Um, so that's one of the, the ideas. The other thing is to cultivate a sense of intrinsic self-worth, that I shall evaluate the quality of my work. And even though I, I, I have these two polls and they provide some feedback, right? Yep. The main feedback comes from the fact, am I happy with what I've done? Um, and I think it's, it's hard to maintain that in this world of likes and hearts and whatever, because it erodes your own sense of self-criticism yeah. because you have this instant reaction from the crowd, like, oh, we liked it or we didn't like it, right? And you can grow addicted and you can grow weak very quickly from that. So I try to really keep an arm's length distance to that. And then I keep thinking about passages in, um, in works that I have that are ridiculous that people liked and go like, yeah, that was stupid. So rework, for example, we have, um, I think there's like five phrases that are the most 
quoted phrases, right? One of those phrases is, um, watch the waves, see where they break, adjust accordingly. I'm like, that sucks. Stupid. That is so stupid. And like, it's one of the things like, a lot of people reacted like, oh yeah, wow, that sounds like it has something. And to me, it has nothing, right? It's such an empty calorie poster with like the wave and like where we can all be like, oh, that's hanging in the waiting room in a doctor's office, right? And like, and so I wrote that. I mean, that's just dumb. So that's a good grounding effect just to look back at your own idiocy to just go like something yeah I have a good be. laugh exactly have a good laugh at it right i'm so grateful for you coming on the show this has been an absolute treat i'm already reading the show notes in my mind um thank you for being wildly radically unconventional and for helping the rest of us think that way well, thanks for having me huge treat david thanks bud Cool. All right, signing off until probably tomorrow. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time, and whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn. So check that out. They're just slash Creative Live or at Creative Live all over out there on the internet. All right. Until again, uh, probably tomorrow. I hope I'll hear you. I'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and I'll look for your comments on the internets. Bye.